Morning, everyone. Well, we're following on from Pastor Glenn's message last week where he introduced us to uh, some of the names of God. And some of you may be surprised if you uh, type into your favourite search engine and ask it just how many names of God there are. You will find that there are hundreds and hundreds of names and titles for God. Perhaps um, that goes some way to explain how difficult it is for us as humans to really understand who God is. We need so many different names, each revealing different aspects of just who he is. Now, I did a bit of a rough calculation as to how long it might take us to get through those names of God. Uh, we're looking at 18 and a half years uh, for the sermon series if we're going to cover the different names of God that are there and that's without allowing any time for Christmas or Easter or any special topics or guest speakers. If we add them in we're looking at about a 20 year um, preaching series and I'm pretty sure that most of you are not up for that and uh, I, I might not even be alive to get to the end of that. Um, so we've had to be very selective in what we choose here and what we've ended up with is a group of names which originate in the Old Testament and which progressively reveal to God's people something of his character. So you'll see that we begin this week in the book of Genesis. Next week and the week after we'll be in Exodus and then we move on to Leviticus and then we move into the time of the judges. We'll move on to uh, the time of, of the monarchy, the kings. Um, and from there on finishing up in the exilic prophets, uh, looking at Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some names which originate there. And these names all tell a story. Together, as we learn these names, we will learn not only something of the character of God, but something of the story of his people as we move through these books of the Old Testament together. And of course, we will learn how we are to respond to God in relation to each of these names. And so we begin today with what is probably one of the best known names for God, at least among my particular generation. Because as a young person in the 80s, I grew up with that first song that we sung, Jehovah Jireh. It was just on repeat in church services. It just seemed to be going round and round, particularly in the youth services. We sung it a little bit differently to how we have sung it now, but it, it really was an earworm that got in your ear and you just couldn't get it out of your ear and you'd be going through the week, Jehovah Jireh, my providers, wanted it maybe out of your head. Um, but as a result, if you ask anyone who's about my age, who's been in church for a long time, to list some of the names of God, this one will be near the top of their list. And not only can they remember the name, but they can pretty much give you a good idea as to what it means. Jehovah Jireh, as we sung, my provider. Now, the problem is, unless you are reading the King James Version, you will not find that name in your Bible anywhere. Because it's highly unlikely 
that you will find Jehovah anywhere in your Bible. In the Hebrew scriptures, the name of God was written as a sequence of four consonants, Yud, Her, Vav, and Her. And they read from right to left. Now in English, we display that as YHWH, and we read from left to right. Uh, the, the Vav was said to have a sound closer to, to W originally. And we call that the tetragrammation. And in English, when we read it, it makes no sense because it has no vowels in it. And it's very hard to read YHWH in English. Likewise, today we need the Hebrew vowel points, which were not present in ancient Hebrew, to know how to pronounce that name. Now the Jews so revered the name of God that they would avoid saying it. And so it seems that the Jewish Masorites marked the vowel points from another word, Adonai, over these four consonants to remind people when they were reading the scriptures out, and often it would be a public reading of the scriptures, to say this other word, Adonai, rather than to try and say the divine name of God because the name was so revered. And so eventually, these consonants came to be used within the word. And so the word has become a strange kind of hybrid word of the four consonants from one word and the four vowels from another word, which came to be seen as a word in its own right. And we don't know exactly how that came to happen. Um, this particular guy here, who's a 16th century friar named Galatinus, he often gets the blame, but I think the word, it was actually in use before his time. Regardless, this hybrid word came to be used as a word in its own right, Yehoah. And then when that word came to be Latinized, the Y became a J, because in Latin, J has that sort of sound, yeah. And the W became a V, and so we end up with, in English, Jehovah, because our J is said with a J, not a Y. In ancient Hebrew, there is no true J sound. So what does all of this mean? Does it matter? What it means is that it was highly, highly unlikely that that four-letter name was ever pronounced Jehovah. And the Jews who should know have these sorts of things to say about it. They call it a mispronunciation, something that's grammatically impossible, a philological impossibility, an erroneous pronunciation, and a word that makes no sense in Hebrew. So why do we still use it? Why have we not blotted out for all time songs like, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah? Very popular hymn. Well, 
the Bible was never written in English and there are many steps to get from the Hebrew to the English and sometimes along the way things do get a little bit garbled. Strictly speaking, Jehovah is not correct but I don't think any of you should be losing any sleep over it now. We are a very multicultural church. We have people in this church from many nations and often we have trouble with each other's names, which is why we try and wear our name tags when we remember to wear our name tags. But sometimes even when you can read the name tag, you're still going to have trouble. Now there's a particular man in this church who for about four or five years, I've been calling Lee Kwan. I had no idea that if there's a Q-U and it's being used in a Chinese name, it doesn't get pronounced like Q-U in Queen in English. Uh, apparently his name's pronounced Li Chin or something along those lines. I probably still managed to mangle it up even when I know how it's supposed to be. But for about four or five years, I called him something that sounded absolutely nothing like his name. And every day he would just say hello and just act like nothing had happened. Or we have Peg Lee over here. Most of first service think her name is Peggy. And so she just answers to Peggy. Peggy or Peg Lee. Um, if these people can afford us that kind of grace, I am sure that God is well able to afford those of us who have no idea about ancient Hebrew a little bit of grace if we have completely mangled uh, how we say his name. The best evidence that we have suggests that Yahweh is the correct pronunciation. So our name for today appears in some Bibles, for example, the New Living Translation as Yahweh Yaira, uh, noting that there's no true J sound in Hebrew, so Yahweh Yaira. But in most of your English scriptures, because most of us have no idea what Yahweh Yaira means, the translators help us out. And instead of writing that, they write, the Lord will provide, the Lord in capital letters, to let you know that it's uh, the divine name. So Yahweh, Yaira, the Lord will provide is our name for today and it is one of the earliest names that God has chosen to reveal of himself to his people. Now mostly today we think of uh, provision in terms of financial provision. Um, you know, God provided a house for me. God provided in my need. And many of you have at some point in life stepped out in faith. Um, Damien's already given us a, an example today, but others will have, you know, gone to Bible college with no idea how they're going to pay their fees. Others will have gone overseas in service or left their jobs to do um, some other kind of voluntary work with no idea where the money is going to come from. And there are many within our own church who have stories of checks in the old days turning up in their mailbox with exactly the amount that they needed to the last dollar at the right time the Lord will provide and God does provide for us in material ways but his provision for us goes 
far beyond the material. And to see that, we need to go back to where this word or this name was first revealed way back to Genesis uh, chapter 22. So if you've got Bibles with you today, then open them up. Uh, first book of the Bible, uh, 22nd chapter, Genesis chapter 2, the passage that Vivian read to us earlier. And actually on this weekend when many of you are uh, celebrating uh, the Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, this is a very appropriate passage. Sometimes things often work out like that. It's a very appropriate passage because this is the passage that most Jews associate with Rosh Hashanah, which is their celebration of the New Year. It is the passage that is read out every year at that time, even though it is one of the more difficult, probably the most difficult passages in the Torah, that is the one they read out at New Year, and they blow the ram's horn, uh, said to be a reminder again of this passage. So you might recall that Isaac was the son of the promise. He was the child God had promised to Abraham through whom he would make a great nation. So many descendants, great nation. And he was the miracle child born to Abraham and to Sarah well into their old age. Now, they were not just a little bit beyond childbearing years. They were well, well beyond childbearing years. So Abraham, 100, Sarah in her 90s. So let there be no doubt this was a miracle child. And that's how it seems to the reader, at least until God asks Abraham uh, to take Isaac up the mountain and offer him there as a burnt offering. And if you are a new reader of the Bible, you are probably rightly wondering at this stage, what on earth is going on here? God makes this promise. These people wait many years for this promise to be fulfilled. And then this much wanted uh, child God tells him to take him up the mountain and offer him as a, as a burnt offering. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what either Abraham or Isaac were thinking at this time. But I think there are some things that we can safely infer from the Scriptures. And there seems to have been no hesitation on the part of either of them. Abraham, we are told, was up bright and early the next morning, out cutting wood, gathering the young men, his servants around him, and then they were off. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us would have been dithering. We would have been delaying as much as possible, hitting snooze multiple times on that alarm, finding other things and other places that we needed to be on that particular day. But not Abraham. He is up early, the scripture tells us, and he is onto the job of getting what he needs ready for this burnt offering. And so they set off. First thing the next morning, off they go. And they walk for three days. 
And on the third day, they reach the base of the mountain. And when they reach the base of the mountain, the donkey is left with the servants. All of the wood for the fire that was loaded on the donkey was taken off and loaded onto Isaac, the son. And off they go up the mountain. Now, somewhere on that journey, Isaac uh, sees that his father has the fire and his father has the flint knife and he is the wood, but there's no lamb. And so he asks his father about this. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And his father replies without any hesitation, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And on they go together. And when they get to the place that God had told Abraham about, the wood is arranged, Isaac is bound, and he's laid on the altar on top of the wood. Now, remember, Abraham at this point is in excess of 100 years old. Now, we have a 100-year-old man just about in uh, our church family, and we also have some strapping young men in our church family. We don't know exactly how old Isaac was at the time, but we can also make some educated guesses from what's in the text. The word that is used there to describe him, which in English is translated as boy, is a very flexible word in Hebrew. It can be used to describe anyone from not much more than a baby right through to a young man in maybe his early 20s. The word itself is flexible. It is used here of Isaac, but it is also used of the servants that Abraham takes with him. Now, surely he wasn't taking toddlers as servants with him. So we get some idea of how this is being used. But there are other clues within the text. They walked for three days. Not many toddlers can walk for three days through the desert, especially not if they're helping a hundred-year-old man through the desert at the same time. And when they get to the base of the mountain, all of that wood that was taken off the donkeys is put on to Isaac's back, and he's carting it up the mountain. Not many toddlers can do that. So some of those pictures that we see perhaps in our children's storybooks where Abraham's striding up the mountain with a toddler behind him, they're probably not that accurate. Best guess is that he was probably late teens or early 20s. So we have some strapping young late teens, early 20s men here, and we also have some people nearing 100 uh, in our congregation. And I think it's a fairly safe guess that if I were to give the 100-year-old a piece of rope and ask them to tie down one of the boys in their early 20s and put them on an altar, I think we can all guess who's going to win in that struggle. Probably someone's going to end up with a broken hip and it's not going to be the ones in their 20s. There is no record of any struggle in this account. And I think that speaks volumes about Isaac. Here we have not only Abraham, a man of great faith, but Isaac, probably also a young man of great faith, 
but definitely one, a son who fully trusts his father and is obedient to the father's will, even to his own death. Now, Hebrews 11 gives us some further insight as to what is going on here. It tells us that such was the faith of Abraham that he reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So even if this son uh, was to be sacrificed, Abraham reasoned that he'd be brought back to life by God. Why would he reason that? Because God had promised to him that he would be a great nation, that he would have many descendants and that this child uh, was the child of the promise. And Abraham knew that God keeps his promises. So if Isaac was to die in this moment, Abraham reasoned, wouldn't be for long. He would be raised back from the dead. And as things turn out, just as Abraham is poised with the knife, uh, ready to slay his son, a voice is heard. It's the angel of the Lord telling him not to lay a hand on his son. Abraham looks around. He sees the ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And the Lord had indeed provided just as Abraham had told Isaac that he would. So Abraham adds a new adjective onto God's name and he calls that place Yahweh Yairah, the Lord will provide. Now I spent a decent amount of time at the beginning of this message looking at the first part of that name, Yahweh, and I want to spend what time we have remaining looking at the second part of the name, Yairah. This word is found 45 times in the Old Testament. In only two places, and both of them occur in this passage that was read to us today, in only two places is that word translated into English as provide. On every other occasion, 43 occurrences, the word has something to do with seeing or looking because the word from which it is derived is about seeing and looking. So when Abraham answers Isaac's question as they're going up the mountain about where is the burnt offering, Abraham's response is literally that Yahweh will see for himself or he will see to it. But those who are translating our Bibles into English want to make it crystal clear for us and so they say, we'll provide. There's nothing wrong with that translation except that it loses an important link for us. So when people, ancient Jews who were familiar with their Torah, when they heard this name, Yahweh will see to it, immediately it would have conjured up a link in their minds to another story that was not very far away from it. And that connection has to do with Hagar. So you will remember, many of you, that 
there was quite a long time between the promise of this son, Isaac, to these elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, and when the son actually arrived. And in that time, Abraham and Sarah became a little bit impatient and they decided to take matters into their own hands and so uh, they had a child through Sarah's servant, Hagar. And from the time that Hagar fell pregnant, tensions arose within the family between the two women, Sarah and Hagar. Jealousies arose until the point at which Hagar runs away from the family into the wilderness and she is found there by the angel of the Lord who urges her to return back to her mistress Sarah and promises her descendants too numerous to count and tells her that this child that she is carrying he's going to be a wild donkey of a man a man who has hostilities against many people and including his own brothers. And Hagar responds at that point by giving God a name. And the name that she chooses to give God is El Roy, which means the God who sees me. God had seen her in her distress and so she calls him the God who sees me. So Hagar calls God the God who sees me. Abraham calls God the God who sees to it. And their stories are linked by this whole concept of looking or seeing. And I think it's a deliberate link and we're meant to see it and we're meant to compare the reactions of these two people. So five chapters on from where Hagar calls God El Roy, we're in chapter 21. The promised child Isaac has now been born to Abraham and Sarah. Hostilities erupt between the two women. Sarah wants Hagar out of the family. And so she's cast out with her young son into the wilderness where they wander. And when the water that they had taken with them runs out, Hagar falls deeply into distress and despondency. Um, she can perceive what's about to happen to her son and so she places him in the shade of a tree and she wanders away because she just doesn't want to see what's about to happen. Now God had already made the promise to her that her descendants would be numerous and that this child, the one that she was carrying, the one that she's now laid in the shade of the tree, and leaving him to die, this child would grow to be a wild donkey of a man who would have hostilities with all sorts of people, but especially with his brothers. Now at this point, he's not a man. He's quite young and he only has the half brother so the promises had not yet been fulfilled and yet Hagar becomes despondent. She is convinced that this is the end for her son. Abraham, on the other hand, when he's told that the end for his son might well be nigh, 
What does he do? He's up in Adam the next morning. He's up in faith, getting ready all the things and making the necessary preparations for the sacrifice. He has not a care in the world because he is convinced that God keeps his promises. And he had been told that he too would have many descendants and that this child was the child of the promise. So Abraham knows this is not the end for his son. He is convinced that God will see to it. When the circumstances of life made it difficult for both of them to perceive God's plan, and when it looked like the lives of their, both of their beloved sons were about to come to an end, Hagar and Abraham had very different responses. One of them allowed herself to become despondent. The other one was sure of God's promises and acted as a result in faith. And when we consider this particular name or these particular names, we have to ask ourselves, how do we tend to respond when the circumstances of life make it difficult for us to perceive God's hand in it? God is still El Roy. He is the God who sees me. And he is still Yahweh Yaira, the God who sees to it. He has seen the big picture of humanity. He has seen the problems that sin has caused in this world. And he has seen to it with the provision of his son. Jesus would bear the consequences of our own sin for us. Jesus, like Isaac, would also climb a hill. Jesus, like Isaac, would carry the wood for his own sacrifice. And he would remain obedient to the Father's will even unto his own death. God has seen the big picture of life for us as human beings and he has seen to it. But he also sees the smaller picture of life for each one of us, just like he saw the family problems of Hagar and saw to it for her. When the circumstances of life swirl around us, and they will swirl around us and make it difficult for us to see God's plan, when there are wars, when there are famines, when there is injustice and natural disasters in the world, or in our own individual lives, when accidents happen, when there is illness within a family, when there is financial hardship, job loss, um, when we are being unjustly treated, perhaps in the workplace, how will these hard times affect us? What will these circumstances of life do to us? And how will we respond? Will we tend towards despondency 
like Hagar did? Or are we convinced that God keeps his promises and willing, therefore, to respond in faith? He is El Roy, the God who sees. And he is Yahweh Yaira, the God who sees to it. He does not change. These passages were written many, many, many years ago. But we worship the same God, the God who does not change. And so we can be sure that whatever the life circumstances are that we are facing, however bad the situation might look to us in this world, we can trust him to see and we can trust him to see to it. Amen. Father, we thank you for knowing each one of us personally and together as your people. We thank you for seeing us and for seeing too our needs. You are always dependable. You never change and your promises never fail. We love you, we honour you, we worship you and we give you thanks. Amen. Imjo is going to lead us now in uh, song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ.